So for many of us, the Bible is, is, is uh, available to us, but that's not how we actually got the Bible because the Bible that I'm holding in my hand is not how I, the Bible came to be. And so this series is about how the Bible came to be, what happened, what are the implications for our lives? Because if you don't know the, the story of the Bible, it's very easy to discount the stories that are in the Bible. So our story begins with the resurrection of Jesus. When the disciples of Jesus found that his tomb that he was buried in was empty, this is where the story of the Bible began. Because as soon as the disciples had realized that Jesus has, was raised from the dead, many people began to document what they saw Jesus do when he was alive, when he was alive before he died and also alive afterwards. And some of these people that wrote down some, some documents were guys like the name of Matthew who wrote, as you know in your Bible today, the book of Matthew. When Matthew was writing this document, Matthew wasn't writing the Bible. He was just writing an account of his experience with Jesus. In fact, the original uh, language that the book of Matthew was written in was Hebrew, and it was translated into Greek because Matthew was trying to tell the story of Jesus to the Hebrews. And then there was Mark, and Mark wrote down the very words from Peter, who was an eyewitness to Jesus, who spent uh, many years with Jesus. Mark wrote down what Peter said about Jesus. So we have today the book of Mark. And Luke wrote down his account because he had a friend named Theophilus who was very wealthy, who wanted an orderly account of what happened. He wanted to be, he wanted details, he wanted information, he wanted the chronology. And so Luke wrote down what we know as the book of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And then John, he wrote his own document that was written to everybody. So all these accounts have been floating around in the first century, and then comes the Apostle Paul. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, was great because he went out and he began to teach the, 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 the Gentile churches about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the disciples were enamored with Jesus because he was Jewish. And because he was Jewish, they became enamored with the law and the prophets. They wanted to see Jesus in the Old Testament. They weren't necessarily interested in becoming uh, Jews or in Judaism. They wanted to know about Jesus. And so what they discovered about the Bible, what we discovered last week, was that there was, a, there was the law. There was a civil code. There was a moral code. And it was way, way, way ahead of its time, as we, as we saw before last week. And so the law and the prophets were addressing very specific historical context, context of its time. They were dealing with kings, and they were dealing with prophets who were ranting and raving and writing and warning and illustrating to the people of God how much they strayed. So the law and the prophets became important. And so what the Christians did was that they, they took the Jewish Bible, and they called it the Christian Scriptures. And that really irritated a lot of the Jews in that time. And not only did they, did they call it the Christian Scriptures, they actually started to refer to the old, uh, to the old, to the Jewish text as the Old Testament. And by the time the second century, the church had incorporated in uh, the Hebrew Bible into the Christian worship, and they gave it this name, the Old Testament. The reason why they called it Old Testament was because 
they believed that God's covenant that he established with Israel had been replaced with a new covenant for everyone. But yet at this time in history, in the first century, there was still no Bible. There was just the Hebrew text. There were various accounts of the life of Jesus that people were documenting. And there was some correspondence between a famous church planter and his Gentile congregation. And it's him that we now want to turn our attention to. And this is Saul of Tarsus, the, as we would know him later to be the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, or Saul, was very, very famous. In fact, he was considered the colossal of the apostle. If Paul had a Twitter page, I know most of us aren't on Twitter, but if he had a Twitter page today, it would say something like, Paul, a Pharisee, an author, a preacher, a church planter, the colossal apostle. Because out of all the apostles, Paul did more than any of them. Paul's letters that he wrote to his friends, the letters that he wrote to Christian groups in the province of Asia, those letters changed and shaped Western civilization. He's huge in history. But that is not how Paul would speak of himself. Paul would go on to say, I am, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. And we'd say like, why, Paul? Why? You've done so much to help us. You helped the brothers and sisters in the first century. You're helping us now. I mean, why not get some credit? Why don't you deserve some credit, Paul? And Paul would say to you, when I stepped into the pages of history, I didn't step into the history as a follower. In fact, I persecuted the church of God. You see, Saul was the first person that was willing to put the Christian church out of business. In fact, this, these group of people that were called the Nazarene sect, or they called themselves the way, like as if they had a special way, really bothered Paul. And what bothered Paul was they, they took the Jewish Bible and they hijacked it to say something it didn't say. And Paul was furious. Paul was furious because he was a like a he was an Old Testament Jedi master of knowledge. He studied the Old Testament. He was trained in the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. And he was convinced that the Christians had hijacked their Bible. They were robbing his people of the Jewish tradition. The Christians were robbing the Jews of their system of worship. So Paul went on a, a mission to persecute, torture, to kill anyone who was related to Jesus and his way. He went to the high priest and he got these letters of permission. Give me permission to go and do this, to avenge what's been lost. And the Paul or Saul of Tarsus goes on a rampage. And he strikes so much fear into the Christian church. Then all of a sudden, God recruits Saul of Tarsus to carry the gospel message 
to the known world. Question for me is, why did God choose Paul? Was it because he, had, he, knew, he knew the Old Testament? Was it because he was zealous? The answer is, I don't know. But let me tell you something I do know. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done to other people, there's room for you in the kingdom of God. That I do know. And Paul is a good example of someone who became a Christian and who was embarrassed about his old life. Paul is important to the story of the Bible for three reasons. One, he wrote some of it. He actually wrote 13 letters that survived antiquity. They were copied. They were circulated so much that over time, over centuries, they were considered scriptures. When he was writing these letters, he wasn't writing the Bible. He was writing letters to his Christian friends, to Christian groups. You have to understand, Paul, Paul was a masterful writer. He was well-trained. He was brought up to be a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. Paul grew up in the city of Tarsus, which was kind of like the Harvard of its day of, of Greek literature, of Jewish temple, of great rich history. Paul was a student. And if Paul were to, to give us some input on the Bible and how to understand it, he would say this. Because he explains the relationship between parts of it. He explains um, how the Old Testament and the New Testament come together. And he would write, he would tell us this. If you're going to read the Old Testament, read it for inspiration and motivation. Read about the stories, the saga, from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi. Read it for learning lessons on how God handled his people and how the people responded to God. There are amazing stories and histories in those books. He says, read those for inspiration. Read those for motivation, but not for application. You see, it's the old covenants. It was written in, that, in, a, in a historical context in the ancient times. And Paul would also say this, take your application, take your cues, Take your guiding light of application from Jesus' new commandments, his new covenants. Well, what was that covenant? Paul knew this because Paul talked to Peter. Paul talked to the apostles. Paul had a relation with the apostles. And what he understood and what he got was this. Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This was the ultimate ethic. This was the guiding light for all Christian behavior, was to love one another. In other words, don't love as you have been loved by others. And don't even love others the way you want them to love you. That's the golden rule. We're moving beyond that. This is the platinum rule. 
he says, in essence, I want to treat you. I want you to treat people that you meet. I want you to treat your family. I want you to treat people at school. I want you to treat people at work. I want you to treat people at play. Every person that you see eyeball to eyeball, face to face, I want you to treat them in the same way that your heavenly father treated you through me. And the very next day, in John chapter 13, the very next day, Jesus would put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away because it took his breath away. And Paul's letters are filled with applications of Jesus's new command to the Christian groups around the area. Here are a few of them. In your Bible in Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And you're like, in your relationships, do you know how hard that is? It's not easy to manage, Paul. How do you do that? And Paul would say, it's not easy, I agree, but it is simple. You have to have the same mindset as Jesus. And we're like, what? Yeah. Just like Jesus, Jesus took on the role of a servant, and Jesus never powered up and became arrogant, even though he was God in the flesh. He's writing, if you want to know how to be a good husband, if you want to know how to be a good wife, if you want to know how to be a good father, or a good mother, a good son, or be a good employer, or be a good employee, you have to have the same mindset as Jesus. That's all you need. Paul's saying you don't need 10. You don't need nine. You don't need eight commandments. Use this as your guiding light. Paul makes it terrifyingly clear for us. Here's another one in his letters to the church in Ephesus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, why should I submit to somebody who's not worth submitting to? Well, that's the point, he would say. You're not, you're to submit not out of reverence to them. And you're not to submit out of reverence for yourself. You're to submit out of reverence for Christ. You submit to one another, and then from that verse, he goes on and talks about husbands and wives. What does that look like in marriage? I can tell you from experience, I was not a great supporter of this verse early on in my marriage. In fact, I would go and avoid reading this on purpose because I wanted to be in power. I wanted to be in control. I wanted to have the last say. And what I've learned in my marriage is that the more I powered up, the more I hurt my relationship with my wife. He's saying, if you want to know how this works in marriage, have the same mindset as Jesus. What does it look like for children? What does it look like for people that you work for, people that work for somebody else? Man, Paul is really expounding on the command of Jesus to really teach us 
how to live. Here's another one in Ephesians. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Well, why? Because she's not worth forgiving. I mean, forgive him. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what he refused to do for me? Paul says, wait, 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 wait. You're missing the point. That's the golden rule. We're beyond that. This is the new command. You're to be kind and compassionate to one another and forgive each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. And there it is again. You are to do unto others as God in Christ has done unto you. I bet if you begin to live this way, if you begin to apply some of these principles, if, if Jesus' command is your guiding light, your relationships will flourish. Your marriage will flourish. God would bless that because you're holding in front of you the guiding lights of what Jesus spoke about, of what his life meant. His ultimate demonstration of love was to die for us. And so Paul, Paul's amazing. He wrote some of it. He explains the relationship. And also, the most important thing, I believe, he authenticates the most important event in recorded history because the story of the Bible begins with the resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, there would be no Bible. The story of the Bible began with the resurrection. And Paul's letter to the Corinthian believers is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately and not eventually because there were accusations in the first century that the Christians gradually over time made up the story of Jesus coming back to life. And they would say things like, Luke didn't really write that. Matthew didn't write it. No, 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 that wasn't Mark. No, no, no. They made it up. But the problem with that argument is that they ignored Paul's letter to the Corinthians because Paul was in Jerusalem twice after he visited Corinth. And he spoke to the disciples, to the apostles in Jerusalem. He spoke directly to them. And here's what he writes the Corinthian church. This is what I received when he went to Jerusalem. And I pass on to you. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul, how do you know Peter? Well, I went to Jerusalem. I was there. Peter told me. The people who saw Jesus alive after his death, I just want you to know they're alive right now and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12. And after he appeared to them, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's like, fact check me. Get on a boat right now and go to Jerusalem, and they will tell you. They're alive. They're there. And what I love about this passage is that from the very beginning, the Christians describe death as sleep. You know why? Because when you go to sleep, you eventually what? 
you wake up. These men and women lost their fear of death. Because when your dead rabbi comes back to life and eats breakfast with you, you lose your fear of death. Especially when that rabbi talked about eternal life for three years. He said, I'm going away, but I will come back for you. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples after he resurrected. He appeared to Peter, to the 12, to 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That's like Jesus showing up at a regional church service. He's there. He's back. Scars and all. Here's more, ev here's more evidence. He says, to, to, he says he, uh, and then, he, then Paul writes, then he appeared to James. Now, James is important. He's important because he's the brother of Jesus. This is the James in the gospel that did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. He didn't buy into it. That's why it's important. Of course he didn't. It was his brother. How hard do you think it is to, to convince your brother that you're the son of God? I mean, it's like virtually impossible to convince your own family. This is why he's important. He appeared to James, who becomes a leader in Jerusalem after he sees Jesus. He, he's a disciple. He writes the letter to the church with his name on it. And then lastly, Paul says, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Abnormal because Paul didn't walk with Jesus for three years like the others. Jesus appeared to him on the road as he was going to Damascus to persecute the Christians. And Jesus intervened. Here's some more evidence. A creed is a carefully crafted statement to ensure that, the, that something is accurately transmitted from generation to generation to generation. Paul is quoting a creed that already existed. All the scholars know this. Most people could not read or write. So consequently, the early community, as well as the Jewish community, they did the same thing. They created creeds. And by the time Paul writes this letter, this creed has already been established. The creed goes like this. He quotes it directly in his letter. Christ died for our sin and was buried and rose from the dead and was seen. The resurrection was so widely accepted, it had already been summarized in a creed. In the years that followed, other documents were written, such as the letter that James wrote, John wrote, Peter wrote some letters. Uh, an author wrote the book of Hebrews. Their sources made them valuable. They were collected and protected. A few centuries later, these, these documents were almost in jeopardy. The emperor, emperor Diocletian wrote a law to destroy all the Christian literature. And the disciples protected and collected these letters, copied them, bound them up, buried them, hid them. Until the fourth century, 
when Constantine became the undisputed emperor of Rome, he undid the laws. He undid the persecution. He himself had become a Christian. His mother, a Christian. Scholars and Christians were allowed to work in the open. And they were funded by the state to create the Bible, Ta Biblia, which means the holy books in Latin. These letters that Paul wrote, the gospel, they shaped Western civilization. It shaped my life. It shaped Karen's life. It has shaped your life. I read, I read it almost every day. But here's what's important to remember. The Bible did not create Christianity. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible. Because the story of Jesus would not be worth telling. His story is worth telling because it's a story for every generation. It's a story with personal implications for all of us. This is why it's so important that we, as disciples, we pass on the message. We pass on the creed. We pass on the principle, the guiding light that Jesus taught us. Because every generation needs to know this. Every single one of our friends, of our coworkers. The Bible reminds us Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound in a book. The question is not are you at peace with everything in the Bible, but rather have you found peace with God who so loved the world that he gave us his son. This time, I'm going to read the creed, and I want us to take our communion together. Christ died for our sin and was buried, rose from the dead, and was seen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much. We are gathered in our homes today through technology, able to interact and see each other to celebrate the life of Jesus, the command to love each other, the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence is so clear. The witnesses are so clear and they lay their lives down freely because of what they saw. We just wanna celebrate the victory over sin, the victory that Jesus gives us to wake up each day, to make it new every day, despite how our day was, to create a new day for us, a new relationship daily, God. We're so thankful. And we pray, God, that you'll give us this time to examine ourselves, to look at ourselves, and to replenish our spirit with your amazing love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.